Welcome to the March edition of BBRO Bcast. I'm Francesca Broom, your host and Knowledge Exchange Manager for BBRO. March is traditionally the month we see the sugar beet drills out in the field, but with the soil so wet, it may be a late start for the 2024 season, which is why I listened in on the recent drill training event. We spoke to operators about how to get the crop off to a good start and the importance of that early establishment. First of all, let's hear from Dr. Simon Bowen. You know, we're talking about, we're on drilling operators course, but it is a really important operation. Top two uh, kind of objectives, if you like, are absolutely key. We need rapid and uniform germination, so that's when the seed actually germinates and starts uh, developing, and we need optimum plant population. Our sugar beet crop develops kind of out of phase with most of the sunlight. Best scenarios, we want our crop in the ground, full canopy by June the 20th, which is quite a challenge. But it does reinforce the importance of the drilling operation to get crops in the ground for really rapid and uniform emergence and get our canopy up. So the crop can intercept as much of the light, sunlight as is available through the year, because sugar beet is a very simple crop, converts sunlight into energy, sugar, uh, and that's your yield, of course. Just uh, probably worth just reminding you, those who aren't familiar, some of the key uh, sugar beet growth stages. Obviously, we're going to be talking about a lot about germination. Uh, then we get to the four to six leaf stage. The six leaf stage is the point we stay, the plant is established. We know when they get to that stage, the plant is effectively self-sufficient, certainly of the seed, but it will more likely to survive and produce a viable root through to harvest. 10 to, leaf, 10 to 12 leaf stage. At that stage, the crop becomes more resistant to acquiring the virus. It's not a switch, it's a gradual process. It starts to kick in as the crop matures. Uh, the aphids find that the, the plant less palatable, they don't reproduce. So obviously in terms of controlling virus, that's an important stage for the crop. The quicker we can get crops to that stage, obviously the more impact it can have on reducing virus infection. So there's some key, key growth stages. Let's talk about germination. So effectively germination is obviously the very first stage of growth as a seed goes in the ground. Uh, and obviously the first process which goes on, it, uh, it takes out water. The first phase, it needs water. So first of all, it needs water for the swell, seed to swell up. What we see first of all is the, uh, what we call the, uh, the radical, which is effectively becomes the root that come, develops first because that makes sense, because you really wouldn't want to develop your shoots before your roots, would you? Gets the radical round, down into the ground, which starts developing uh, the roots. And then obviously the hypocotyl, or what we call the stem, develops, and starts producing the leaves. And you, the, the early germination process to the uh, big cotyledons here, first true leaves coming, and then we're getting on to two true leaves, third and fourth coming there. But what I wanted to remind you of, for this whole process to develop, Temperature and water are absolutely key. And we'll go into a bit more detail about that in a minute. Of course, seed has a lot of very clever technologies. One of them is called priming. Uh, and this is very much a way of conditioning the seed so it is much more ready to germinate and grow. Let's talk about temperature. Seed tends that germinates only really where the temperature really gets consistently above 5 degrees. Certainly, I think anything below 3 degrees is going to be very, very slow. And really effectively what it wants to be, it wants to be consistently above five. You don't want it still fluctuating because that's sometimes the worst thing for seed to kind of start and stop, start and stop. So we say is test temperatures regularly, five to ten centimetres with a digital probe, get them off the uh, uh, internet. Actually temperatures are, are quite warm and you see they're warmed up. Whether they stay there very much depends on the temperature from now on in. Uh, but... Uh, 
Let's, let's just be aware, you know, we just need to monitor temperatures and I do urge you to get there and test temperatures before you put seed in the ground. Although I suspect now they will retain a heat. Once you get a kind of heat in the ground, I'd be surprised if they drop down too much, but we will see. I think uh, our spring conditions have changed. We get much more challenging conditions. We seem to have a run of very dry springs. If you remember, water is really important. So we really get more variable patterns. So we don't get always a predictable window. Uh, I think the ability to, to create a good seedbed is really important. We're going to come back to that again and again, but sometimes very early in the season, particularly if it's very dry or cold, it's quite difficult to do that. I think also one of the other things we are better at with the sugar beet crop is, uh, obviously, we, we have much better, we have warmer autumns, and actually allowing the crop to grow on a little bit can actually help sometimes compensate later drilling dates. I think my message to you is don't get hung up on drilling crops by date. Uh, I would, and hopefully the message you'll see in a while is actually pay attention to conditions is often more important than date. Clearly when we get into May, probably the last week of April and May, you will begin to see those yields tail off. But don't be nervous, and I'm saying that because a lot of land is looking very wet and it, you might think it's going to be very slow to come ready. Don't be nervous about drilling into April. Clearly if you've got large acreages, you do need to start as soon as early as you can, but don't be worried if you're still putting crops in in April. And we've seen it time and time again. Sometimes those later drilled crops into better conditions get away much faster and much healthier. When we're talking about temperature, we need to think about uh, bolting. Sugar beet is a biennial variety. It has two growth stages. When we usually drill it, it goes straight into its vegetative stage. It produces a root, which is what we harvest. But it can sometimes go straight into the flowering stage, which is the second stage, which is what we call bolting. This is driven by temperature which is one of the reasons we have to be careful and choose our, our start dates. Because obviously if you acquire too many cold days, and it's from the point of time you put seed in the ground, uh, those, even within the seed it can be sensing those temperatures. If it's too cold, it will encourage those plants to go straight to the flowering stage, what we call bolting. Uh, so we need to be very careful. We'll talk about date in a while. Um, and this effect can be quite different across different varieties. But we do know after the mid-March, the likelihood that it's going to acquire enough cold days. So it's not a, hit, a single cold hit, it's, an acqu it's acquiring of several cold days that triggers that. And we usually call it a vernalisation days. And we know about above 30, the risk of bolting is more. But it's something you have to be thinking of. And sometimes, you know, if you're on the cusp of that kind of early March period, you need to be thinking about which fields might be slightly colder than others and think about what varieties you might put, put in them. If you're looking at varieties which shouldn't be drilled early, i.e. before the middle of March, they all have a red cross on them. That's been derived from uh, trials Stephen's team does, uh, and we look at, and also some breeders' information. So anything with a red cross, we don't really want to be drilling, uh, because if you start looking at the number of uh, bolters it produces, particularly in early minute, they're very high. So just to watch out, I'm sure many of you are familiar with that, but some of you might not be. There's a, there's a bit of another watch out I want to say as well is other traits we have on varieties. When we have beet cyst nematode resistance, we have AYPR, which is a, another problem. We have ALS, Smart and Conviso, and we also have higher disease tolerances. These are all traits, and they may need to go in certain fields. Now, we don't have time to go into detail on this, but make sure you the right variety for the right field, or you have a discussion with somebody who's given that plan. Make sure you've got that plan so you know where they where to go. Really important message, big take-home message from this point. Make sure you know where your different varieties are. 
Usually it's not critical, sometimes it can be critical. So this is a crop I was asked to come and have a look at after a herbicide had gone on. So you can see it's what, two, four leaf stage, herbicides have gone on. But every other pattern across the field, uh, you can see those rows which haven't come or they were badly damaged. And actually just a very small difference in the growth stage. So these ones are more advanced at the two, four leaf stage. These were still at cotyledon stage. They were much more susceptible to herbicide damage. Every field where he'd done this, he'd lost these rows. They kind of recovered a bit, but a point I'm trying to make that varieties can differ and that can have significance for herbicides. So again, make sure you know what varieties you've got where. I do get nervous when we mix them like that, you know, uh, on the back of a drill because it could make it really, really challenging. And the other one, of course, the other trait you really need to be aware. So how many of you are growing ALS varieties, smart varieties? So again, knowing where your ALS varieties is really key. So we talked about varieties, we talked about the germination process, we're going to talk about cultivations and hopefully the message is drill them into a warm seed, moisture retentive seed bed. Seed bed is really important, it's important for that seed soil contact and the early rooting. Let's talk a little bit about soil structure. We could, we could speak for hours on soil structure but I'm not going to, you'll be pleased to know. Just to remind you, it is an important factor. I mean, soil structure is very much how, how the soil organises itself, particularly the aggregate structures. And clearly with uh, sand, silt and clay, I don't need to tell you, you've got some fundamental differences, some very large, large aggregate sizes in the sand to much smaller in the silt and clay. Uh, what we are increasingly understanding is the, how the biology of the soil interacts with us is really important. Uh, and obviously where we have a more biologically active soil, the soil generally seems to be healthier. And importantly for you, actually probably easier to get to a good seed bed, uh, particularly because it helps uh, bind soil particles together and gives us a nice stabilising structure. So I know this is a drilling course and many of you won't be involved in the, uh, the seed, uh, on, on, on cultivations. Some of you will be, but you, you will inherit the seed bed. Uh, I would always encourage you before you put a drill in the field to put a spade in the field and have a look what, what you've got. What we're targeting is a nice kind of, I call it a germination early root in seed bed of around five to seven centimetres. We want a high percentage of small particles, certainly less than five millimetres, not too fine because uh, that avoids slumping and, and capping. And then below that zone, we've got a large overstructure. But that's what we're drilling into. We need those nice small uh, small aggregate particle sizes to encourage soil seed uh, contact. So Simon has set the scene for what we need to get the crop off to a good start, particularly making sure you wait for the right level of both moisture and warmth in the soil to ensure your seed germinates well. Let's move over to the BBRO Master of Machinery and that's Stephen Aldous to look at cultivations. So I guess a bit back about me, uh, so my role at BBR now is very much delivering the trials and the RL, but a lot of you will maybe remember me from when I joined, I was very much a machinery based role, so I was out a lot with harvesters, and we started the drill testing programme as well, which led to this drill training programme. And before that, I guess the probably more important bit is I used to work for one of the manufacturers, I was working for a North American business, precision planting or precision drilling. Ironically, the only crop I didn't work on was sugar beet. And the only country I didn't drill in was the UK. So when I came over, there was a lot of transferable knowledge. So hopefully some of the rules apply. And as we see some more of the uh, Valdestad type, the Kuhn type machines, a lot of that stuff that I was developing back then uh, is now very relevant to what you're seeing on farm with sugar beet. We'll start with a few cultivation comments. Uh, we could talk about this for a long time, uh, but unfortunately I only have half an hour, so we will be fairly quick. There's a lot of things we need to consider. 
the importance of the seedbed. We don't have tillering. We really need that seed to germinate. We need it to produce that root. And unfortunately for us, many things can go wrong. Uh, and a lot of that will start with tillage. Obviously today is largely about drilling, but really that operation in front of you is just important as what the drill is going to do. So cultivations, seedbed moisture. I remember standing here last year saying we really need to hold on to that seedbed moisture. Uh, because we'd had three years of dry springs and then it turned into the wettest drilling period I think I've ever known. So seedbed moisture, who knows? Maybe you need to hold on to it, maybe you need to get rid of it. I'm not going to make any predictions for what's about to happen this year, but do be careful. We can dry those seedbeds out very quickly because that seedbed moisture is going to be a big drive of our populations and our speed of establishment. Slump seabeds, we still have a passion for cultivations in this country, whether it's recreational or required. So just keep an eye on that, make sure we are doing operations that are necessary. Same applies for uh, capping. Cloddy seabeds, I'm sure with some late ploughing this year, this might become a challenge for us. Compaction, I will talk about more. Pans and erosion, all things we need to be careful of. Big thing I like to point out when we're talking about drilling sugar beet is that what you do with the drill will directly impact the harvester. The biggest thing we found, harvester testing, the biggest impact on harvester loss, so how much root we're recovering, was essentially the quality of the crop and the quality of the seedbed in front of it. If you've got a level seedbed and an even establishment, then that harvester is going to do the best job it can. Again, whistle-stop tour, primary cultivations. A lot of these are obviously going to be done in the autumn, but I'm sure there's still quite a lot to do. Soil structure, again, we could talk about this and I'm probably not qualified. But we know that this has a huge impact on our sugar beet crop. We've got a taproot growing down. Restructuring soils is very important. My watch out would be make sure you're doing this at the right time. Another pet hate of mine, so we've had some uh, fertiliser applied to that seedbed ahead of drilling, ahead of cultivations. But they haven't used the same tram lines as it's going to use in the crop. And you can see every wheeling of that sprayer through that whole crop at 90 degrees to those plants, which you can see nicely there. So again, if you can use the same tram lines throughout the whole cropping cycle, I don't know why you wouldn't, because it can have a major impact. I'm not going to say you need to go and dig a saw pit in every beet field, because that's not realistic. My big thing to you is, if you know you've got a problem, great. You can go and do something about it. But just make sure the machine is actually doing what you think it is. Are we going to put a subsoiler through saws now? Probably not. It's very wet. Are they going to alleviate compaction like we want them to? Probably not. So it's just as important to check before and after to make sure you're actually getting rid of the problem and you're not just creating yourself another one. We're not having upward compaction and smearing. There will be a limit to how much remedial work you can do this spring if the conditions stay like this. Ready to go. This is something we talk about with regard to dry springs. I'm a bit reluctant to talk about it now, but I think it's important to remember if seed beds are drying quickly, if the, if the weather patterns change, just think about how we're going to conserve that moisture to the point where we can get the drill in the ground. You might be waiting on a contractor, you might be drilling other crops on farm. But is there something we can do to that ploughing, to that primary tillage, whether it's putting a press over it, is it rolling, to conserve that moisture if we know we're going to be into that dry settled period. Basic maintenance again, my pet hates. It can happen on primary tillage, it can happen on secondary tillage. Just make sure we're leaving the most level seedbed possible. It'll help the drill operate and it'll help the harvester operate. And scrapers on packers is my real bugbear. If you've got a packer that's licking when it's wet, and we saw this a lot last year in the wetter conditions, it's just not leaving you a level, clean seed bed to put that beet seed into. It's the cheapest wearing metal on the machine. Please replace it and adjust it. I get asked a lot for opinions on machines. 
I try not to give them because they all have their place and there's many questions I'd have to ask you before I said whether it was appropriate for you or not. Combination harrows, obviously very effective for creating sugar beet seedbeds and widely used. There is quite a range of them available now. My question to you is how many passes do you require to actually get the seedbed you want? If you're going to be using a germinator, it can do it in one pass, but if you require three, is that really the appropriate tool for you? We're going to be drying that seedbed out. We're going to have additional wheelings in that seedbed. So it's at that point I may say maybe it's worth trying something new, trying something different. It may be a short disc. Uh, we're seeing a lot more cover crops coming into sugar beet, so we're having to deal with that residue. So the short disc, obviously very popular for getting a chit at harvest in the, in the summer, uh, and it can be used as a secondary cultivator in the spring. Again, with wet conditions, I'd be concerned about smearing with discs. We don't want to be leaving a ridge seed bed for that mate that beet drills come into. There are some advice on if we're looking to create fine seed beds, then we want a small notch blade. We don't want something big, creating big lumps and causing us some problem in drilling. Power harrows tend to get a bad reputation. A lot of people are against it, say it's bad for soil structure. I'm not saying they're great, but I would come back to my how many passes do you require? Uh, my consideration, if you can do it in one pass with a power harrow, is that better than three or four with a combination harrow? What's the lesser of all evils? So I'm not saying, I'm not recommending it, but I would just say I wouldn't rule it out for every situation. With the interaction of the weather and varying soil types, there's no such thing as a blueprint for getting your seedbed right and for what cultivations to use, but hopefully Stephen has provided you with some helpful tips there. Let's now return to Simon to hear a little bit more about seed rates, population and establishment. So seedbed sorted, so target population. Again, if you're not familiar with this, there's a magic figure. The target population is 100,000 established plants per hectare. I use established plants because if you remember earlier, I said the six leaf stage. We know when they get to that stage, they will survive through to producing a viable root. 100,000 plants, so basically 10 plants per metre squared on 50 centimetres rows. How do we know that? Lots of work's been done in the past, establishing the yield response to increase in uh, plant population. Certainly you can see very poor yielding below 60. Between 60 and 70 increases quite a lot, but when we do start getting above 80, it begins to plateau out, reaching an optimum at 100. But 80,000 is still doing quite well, but economically, and it's all based on the economics of yield versus seed costs, it's still worth targeting that 100,000 plants. Of the, of the seed you drill into the ground, what proportion of those drill seeds do you think make it to actually the six-leaf stage? There's no wrong answer on this one because it varies massively, but do you think, on average, what do we manage to...? You would hope at least 90. You would hope, yeah, hope, hope 90. No. But very, very typically, though, we, we get establishment is between 75 and 80%. So what that's telling you is we lose 25, 20 to 25% of that seed fails to establish as a plant. That's a big global average. Some people do it a lot better uh, in some situations and some people don't establish that. A lot of that's driven by soil type, of course. But it's just important to know that figure. So if you are looking to establish 100,000 plants, you need to put in a slightly higher seed rate to compensate for those losses. Main causes of uh, seed not making it to the sick leaf stage? Pests, yeah. We've talked about one already. Weather, yeah, dry conditions. Capping, that's probably compaction with some very wet slump soil. Drought. You see some damage there. Bird damage is, is a, a frequent one, which is a real pain, isn't it? Uh, chemical residues, yeah. Not so frequently, thankfully, but they can do. But certainly herbicide damage by going in and using a, a too hot a herbicide at the wrong growth stage. So lots of those. And you can split them into groups. So obviously conditions before drilling, 
pH is one, uh, can affect it. Poor seabeds, I've touched on that already. At drilling, of course, the wrong seed rate. Variable spacing. Poor drilling depth, compaction too deep. And Stephen, you're going to touch on some of these, aren't you? How to set up drills. Uh, but we can get it wrong at drilling. And then conditions after drilling, I've touched on some of those. It's, it's impossible to say which one's the worst because it, it depends on situations. But uh, generally, it comes back to seabed, I would say. And just to remember that whilst sugar beet is fantastic, if you, get a, if you get a gap either side of it, it can compensate. But when that gap gets too large, certainly two to three missing plants down the road, it can't compensate. So you'll see, begin to see your yield tail off really, really quickly. And there's some nice work which has been done at, uh, to demonstrate that. So... Yeah, it has an ability to compensate. There are a few things we do on seed to help you. We get some uh, seed fungicides. This is one we're watching with uh, caution for this year called blackleg or aphomyces. Likes low pH, likes warm, wet conditions. Hopefully conditions would change by the time we get there. But it's another reason to get crops into ground and they go quickly. But all our seed, all the seed you have is treated with a, a product called uh, tachygarin. And that will give some activity against uh, some of the soil-borne diseases. Not rhizotonia, not FOMA, uh, but uh, that's it. We also have some help uh, in many cases with uh, some pesticides. I'm not talking about cruiser here. We'll touch on that in a minute. Uh, force, many of you will order seed with force on it. We generally advocate it because it gives some act activity against a range of what we call soil pests. This is a pygmy beetle. You can probably just see it above ground, but it will go below ground. And symphalids as well. It can cause a lot of gappiness and variation. Uh, and those products are quite active, but no activity against wireworm, and of course no activity against aphid vector, so really just soil-inhabited uh, pests. So we're now into aphids looking to find host crops, flying around in, goodness knows when, when do you think, Alistair? May, June this year? Tomorrow. Tomorrow. <laughs> uh, and... When, when they try to, they, they actually physically try to locate crops. It's not a kind of random action. And they will use contrast. So they can see in colour as well. Low population or a young crop or a gappy crop, they can focus in on it. Uh, and when we were doing some monitoring work in 2020, if you remember, it was a bad virus year, we looked at some crops without organic matter and, and with organic manures not. Straight away, you could see the effect of conditioning the soil of organic manures. Higher plant populations. Do you think that had a big effect on... Virus, virus levels, higher population, less colour contrast. Absolutely, and it surprised us how much. Now, there's other factors going in here. This was not controlled experimentation, but clearly it was a very clear effect that where the populations were lower, a little bit lower, there was a lot more severe virus in crops. Same as the cospora and, of course, the disease effect. So just to remind you, another reason for getting very good uniform and rapid emergence is to reduce the ability of aphids to locate those crops. What population do you think it's uneconomic to actually take forward to crop and actually you need to redrill? Is it 60 or is it less than 60? Less than 60, yeah. Typically, when we get below 50, it depends on circumstances. It turns, depends on the ability to get a seabed. Because, again, usually below 50,000, redrilling is usually required. Uh, and this raises about variable rate drilling. There are a lot of kits there. You might be used to on, uh, on other crops. As conditions change, as you get through drilling... I've, I would encourage you to think about uh, what's happening and think about whether you need to change your seed rates, uh, particularly soil type changes, because I suspect many of you will set up your drill at 1.25 and that's it for the season. I'm looking for any nods around. It's easy, isn't it? But actually, if we really want to do pay attention and actually really understand where we need to maybe increase it or maybe even reduce it, where I'm getting a really good seedbed, 
Uh, I think we need to be alive to that possibility. So where, particularly where soil type changes, if you can see obvious legacy wheelings or compactions, it's always a problem. Headlands, probably sometimes good to increase uh, seed rates there. And, and topography, sometimes elevated areas where it's much drier or even colder areas. So I think it's worth thinking about that as you go on. A quick watch out at this point, of course, if the cruiser uh, SB derogation is triggered and you have you have some cruiser seed, you have to understand there's a maximum rate of 1.15 uh, units an acre, 150,000. So you, you have to disregard what I've just been talking about it. There's an upper limit on what you should do, and it's really important. Now, if you do need to do a higher seed rate because you're wary, very worried about a field being really low established, you can use non-cruiser seed, but you must record everything where you've done it, all the cruiser seed and also the non-cruiser trees. We've got absolute traceability of what's being used where. That's really important for the stewardship point associated with cruiser. My last point is about variable rate. We talked about, obviously, uh, uh, it's a technology that's coming. Anybody doing variable rate drilling? When I say drilling, fully connected GPS to soil maps and things like that, no? Oh, serious, yes, and that's my point, but not on Sugarbeet, no. And I think it's a new area, but it's a technology you do have at your hands. We're still learning a little bit, and I think the key to unlocking it is how much you need to increase it, how much you need to decrease in it in different areas. We leave Simon on thoughts of new technology and we've already looked at cultivation, seedbed, germination, establishment, population rates. But let's get to the nuts and bolts. How are you going to actually drill? And the best person for this is Stephen Aldous. So, to the point I should be talking about, drilling. Sugar beet is quite unique. Whatever we do with the drill, the harvester has to follow. That's the rules, but they can't cut across the row like a maize harvester. They can't just turn through a row. We don't have flex headers, etc. How many of you drill with RTK? So you're investing in a level of accuracy. Uh, we do. Uh, we, if we drill beyond five centimetres on row, then the trial has to be abandoned because we have compensation with the crop. But really, my point is we're investing in that level of accuracy. Why aren't we following that through with everything else we're doing, whether that's seed beds, whether that's drill setup? Again, I get asked which drill is appropriate for you. There's a lot of questions, crop rotation, soil types, cultivation, and I think a lot of these things are actually changing on farm. We've got cover crops coming in, we're grazing, we're doing a whole host of things, so maybe it is time to change. Uh, drill testing, uh, this used to be something we would push quite hard with the mechanical drills, the traditional drills. Ben Burgess, typically in this area, would offer it for the Monosem and other brands. Obviously, as you get into the vacuum, pressure type meters, there's less... Uh, less that they can be tested on the bench, but there is still that option out there for the traditional beat drill. Having a worn drill can have a huge impact on your, on your distribution of seed, on your singles, your doubles, so it's definitely worth doing uh, if you haven't had it tested for a while or if the drill may be new to you as a second-hand unit. It's very important to get that right. Not only do we want to hit that 100,000, but we want that 100,000 plants in the right place. Before I switch roles within the BBRO, uh, each spring I would be out and we would offer a drill test to you as growers. So essentially I was looking at your population distribution, we were looking at the seedbed moisture where you were placing the seed, we looked at your seedbed levelness and your seed depth consistency, so hopefully to give you a picture of how well you were performing. So Simon talks about establishing 100,000 plants, so we're going to be drilling maybe 120,000, and I was doing counts in the row, and what I actually found is that people weren't necessarily drilling what they thought they were, and there's a whole host of reasons for this, it may be a radar calibration, it could be a gear selection. It could be they haven't told the contractor what seed rate they want. It could be the contractor didn't bother to change the seed rate that they wanted. So when we're talking about getting that 100,000 plants, 
back to basics, have we actually got the operator set up to do the job we want? Again, yeah, so 23% range of where we thought we were to where we actually were. So again, it's just worth checking, making sure cap radars are calibrated. To be fair, GPS coming through drills now is actually taking that site element out of it. And just following up with the, your contractor, your operator, that you want seed rates to change, whether it be blocks of fields uh, or between farms. So just make sure that that is getting done. To understand the performance of the drill itself, we had to buy a new bit of technology. Uh, essentially, it's a little accelerometer uh, and we crudely would attach it to some row units on your drill and I could see how much vertical movement we had. This could be used in many ways. We often talk about forward speed being a problem uh, and equally there will be guidance from your manufacturer on what that drill is designed to do. But this was just to show, show so same drill, same row unit, same field. If we vary the speed from six kilometers an hour to eight, you can see suddenly those accelerations are getting bigger. So that unit is bouncing around more. In turn, that's gonna vary my seed depth in the soil. So picking the right forward speed is very important when maintaining seed depth. Uh, we'll talk about down pressure and how that can affect that as well. But it's just to show the impact of forward speed. We're introducing more kinetic energy into the system. If it hits a stone or a tough spell, it's not gonna, it's gonna bounce higher and it's gonna be out of the ground longer. Establishment count, uh, very important. Uh, you will be asked uh, potentially by British Sugar or by your agronomist and you'll go and do establishment counts and you'll probably pick somewhere between a tram line. If I'm interested in what my drill's done, I'm not really worried between the tram line or between wheelings. What I want you to be looking at is what is it like behind the wheeling? If, one, if two in 12 units are behind a, a wheel, then that's a big part of my field. So I want to understand, are they establishing as well is every other unit on the, on the row, on the drill. Equally headlands, have we got more compaction from turning? Do we need to change our cultivations? Drill weight is an interesting topic, and I don't want to be too controversial because obviously we have both all types of machinery here. Uh, we've seen a big increase in the maize type machine. So these are, uh, I think it's fair to say, initially came in as a maize type drilling machine, but are now being utilized for sugar beet. Uh, that weight can be very useful for us if we're in a min-till, strip-till, if we've been really dry seed beds. Uh, it can be good for coulter bounce, which we talked about earlier. But my point really is just be conscious that they are different. If you're going from a conventional beat drill up to a uh, sort of hybrid vacuum type machine, we're essentially doubling in weight. Not only are you going to change the drill, you're probably going to change the tractor on the front. So we've doubled the, the, doubled the drill weight and we're probably going to add about three tonnes onto our tractor weight. To reduce the weight on our drilling tractor, on our drilling system, is obviously compaction we're not putting into the ground, into that seedbed. Row units uh, and row widths is an interesting debate. 45s versus 50, I'm not going to get into it now. Um, my only advice, just for some... Uh, anecdotal observations from harvester testing is making sure that those drills are where you think they are. Again, it seems like a really silly question, but if you're going to tell your harvester driver that you're at 50s and you bought that drill secondhand and maybe it's on 20 inch or maybe it had been tweaked here and there, if that drill is new to you, just throw a tape measure across it before you start drilling. Is everything where you want it to be? GPS setup, a lot of you will be moving on to row shut off. How many of you are running row shut off on drills now? 
Hopefully once it's dialed in, fantastic tool. My advice to you though, if you've got a new machine coming, is allow yourself enough time to get this dialed in properly. When you get it wrong, it's pretty obvious. You get a nice castellated headland. So uh, just make sure you give yourself enough time, enough labor to get those timers dialed in. Cold to wear, very basic. Obviously with a, uh, a cold type machine, obviously just making sure you're maintaining that edge, that you've got a nice groove to sit that 4.75 mil beat seed into. Equally, disc machines, they will wear as well. Uh, slightly trickier to keep them maintained. That's one of the techniques we used to use with two business cards and you just tuck them in and you're looking for that contact patch. I will let the manufacturers answer how they do it and what they advise on their machines. It can have a huge uh, impact on performance and uh, seed placement if that gets too worn and you get sore going between the two discs. Drilling depth, uh, I'm sure you've all seen this in our reference book. Uh, we're looking at two and a half to five centimetres, which sounds a lot, but when you're in, uh, into a seedbed, suddenly you realise how shallow that is. So when I took over the trials, we were always pushing this scale of things. We had mouse problems, etc. And then suddenly last year, we find ourselves drilling into wet seedbeds, which are probably going to get a lot wetter by the time we roll out of the field. And we're adjusting drills into holes that we'd never used before because we're trying to place that seed that bit shallower. And even afterwards, in hindsight, I wish I'd gone even shallower again in some instances, just to help that seed get through. I don't know if any of you had that experience last year, but it really challenged my, what, my norm of how deep I place seed. Row unit down pressure is probably one of the big advances in, in the new machines uh, that are available to you and even upgrades on the current ones. Down pressure essentially will be transferred from the, from the frame of the machine onto the row unit. Uh, this could be done through mechanical springs or hydraulic cylinders. Uh, it's important to know that down pressure isn't the same as depth. We want to set our depth first and then we start to look at down pressure. Down pressure is there to maintain depth, not gain it. Great tool. Uh, unfortunately though, there is, as I said there, there can be too much of a good thing. But in relation to what I said earlier about forward speed, we could increase down pressure uh, to try and reduce that and bring that back down. Uh, when we are running at those higher forward speeds to achieve output. Again, the same could be said for soil type. If we move on to heavier, can we increase that down pressure and stabilize those units to keep that, down, keep that seed depth the same? So often with those down pressure kits, the way we do it is we have side depth wheels. So essentially they're gonna be our, our stopper to stop that unit going too deep. If we put too much pressure down onto the unit, we are going to be creating small compaction zones under those side depth wheels. In dry conditions, this is going to be minimal, but in the conditions we had last year, we can actually be creating compaction in completely the wrong place to where we want it because we're going to basically lock in that seed with compacted soil. So adding down pressure is a really useful tool, but sidewall compaction would be my watch out to all, especially if you're switching over to those machines for the first time. You only want enough down pressure to maintain depth. We don't want to be going beyond that because we will be creating ourselves problems. Press wheels, the more manufacturers that come to the market, the more variation there is available. Uh, again, they all have their place. Uh, and we saw the strength in some last year with the wet conditions that we hadn't perhaps seen before. So that we often use the uh, rubber finger press wheels, uh, very good for non-capping, but obviously it depends on your soil type and what you're trying to achieve. Drill hygiene, Simon touched on this earlier. So just be aware, all Conviso varieties aren't now orange with a blue inner. You may have a dark green pellet on farm. So watch out for that as well if you're contracting, etc. You don't want to be just mixing that in. 
Is it really empty? Again, we do a lot of trial work. We empty a lot of drills. Uh, some are easier than others. Um, just make sure that is taken out. Obviously, the embarrassing thing is if you have non-conviso seed in a conviso field, because it, when the spray goes on, it all dies. But the other thing we're concerned about is bolters. You don't want conviso seed bolting in a field where you don't even know it's been. Um, it would be embarrassing if in a few years' time suddenly you've got a conviso bolter fit problem in a field that should never have had conviso in it, but it may have just been drill hygiene that had done it. So, yeah, from an operator point, anytime you're near conviso, make sure your hygiene is tip-top. One of the highlights of our drill operator training days is to meet with the manufacturers. And this year, we're really pleased to welcome along Cavernand, Monasem, Kuhn, Grimmy, and Vardastat. So at the end of the day, I caught up with all of them, starting with Vardastat. So we're coming to the end of day one of our drill training here. So I'm really pleased to be joined by Nick and Colin, who actually are sort of quite old stalwarts of this event. Veteran. Yeah. You've been here as long as Yeah, you yeah, <laughs> yes, <laughs> that's it, yeah, yeah. Um, so great to have you back again. What have you found as the main questions that the growers have been asking for this year? I think, the ch yeah, the challenges of the of the autumn, really. Obviously, we've had wet since, what, mid-October at the time. There seem to be a lot of questions today about consolidation and uh, travelling on wet soils and, and dry soils, actually, and how to deal with the, the weight across the... Across the fields, really. And so, yeah, you talk about weight there. I heard some of the discussion with that. What are your thoughts? I mean, what should the growers be doing? I think it's trying to do as, really, as little as necessary. Um, it is, I think Stephen used the phrase of uh, recreational tillage. And I, th I think certainly this time, um, I'm seeing more people asking or talking about timed equipment opposed to disc equipment. Because I think obviously anything that has been cultivated over the winter has had a, a lot of weight on it from the rain and, and, and packed down and, and compacted really. Um, and generally a time would do a better job to aerate the soil and, and get um, get that ground Yeah, I think it's refreshed. getting some air, air through the soil that's been sat wet and sodden for, for qu and looking quite sad actually. Yeah, everything's... To capacity now, isn't it? It's, um, Have you noticed a change in growers' conversations about soil health and cultivations in the last, sort of, I don't know, three, four years? I, I think there's there's so many different types of tillage. I think uh, a lot of people get very confused about what they can actually do and what can't do. And there is so many ideas of how to do with it. I don't, not sure that everybody's actually looking at what they should be doing more than what's fashionable at the time, I think. So, so for want of a better term, we're, we're all getting bogged down in almost too much Yeah, yes. yeah, yeah, I, very I, much I think so. so. And I think a lot of it is back to basics yeah. and soil. I mean, you know, it's it's fairly obvious what your soil needs at the moment. Um, I think there's a, there's a fear of when it does finally start raining and it does dry up is when we, it will ever rain again. <laughs> Because yeah. to and be I, fair, you know, it's one of those things, isn't it? We're, yeah. We're moaning like mad that it's too wet now, and probably in another three, four months we'll be saying. In, in a dust, in a dust bowl, yeah. We've seen yeah. it so many times, haven't we? And I think, but, as Colin said, a lot of decisions are almost directed, really, through either legislation or or 
fashion, for use of a better word, really. Um, but we are seeing people are possibly just easing back off that a little bit and doing what's right for them. Um, a lot of these general cultivation advice isn't. We, we know it's a yeah, it's it's something that needs to be specific to your farm and your soil types and and your cropping and everything else, really. So I think when we end up having a season like we've, we're having and had, it throws all the systems out, and we go back to. Yeah. What we so we can get a crop in what, the what we know and yeah. what we've uh, experienced. Nothing replaces say, yeah. the experience of exactly. knowing the yeah. soil, knowing yeah. what works for them. Yeah. Um, yeah. And it's saying that BBO, we, we can give advice and support, but but we can't. There, there isn't a belief. No. No. I, I think no. having a plan of your cultivations is great until you have a year like this. Yeah. It? Exactly. Yeah. So before I move on. Your barn stack drill here. Is yeah. there, can you pick one key point that you really would like to get across to growers? Accuracy really is where we we're new to the party. If you if you look at some of the other manufacturers, um, they've been doing it for generations really. And as a company, Vardasad, we've only been making this what twelve years, Colin. The tempo really yeah. just a yeah. bit over. From... Originally, sunflower and maize were the main crops. We've gone into beet and other plant, other crops now. I think there we're over a dozen, fifteen different crops we can plant with it. Um, but we, we, the the sort of disadvantage when we first started was that. Um, it was the lack of output, really, the lack of forward speed. And again, Stephen covered it in his presentation that as soon as you increase speed, you increase inaccuracy. So that was our main challenge, to maintain what was already available in the market and improve where we could, really, but be able to go at higher forward speed. So we would never advise you hear of people going 18, 20 kilometres an hour with maize. 10 to 12 is more than adequate for sugar beet, really. And really, that's one thing we think with the tempo we've we've achieved. We've made changes to it. We've made changes over the last four or five years. There are changes coming in the more future. To come. Really focused around sugar beet more than anything else because of that um, accuracy that we need. So we'll definitely look forward to having you back next year. Look forward to it. Yeah. Here's some new um, points from you. Hopefully, yeah. yes. Yeah? yeah. Thank you very much. Thanks for your time. So, Steve, great to see this lovely blue bit of kit amongst us all the rest of them here today. Um, one of Sam's obviously uh, quite a specialist when it comes to drilling. So, why do you particularly like to come and meet our sugar beet operators? It's a great opportunity to explain to the growers or the drill operators that Monosem's a specialist in precision drills in that we only manufacture and supply precision drills and inter-road cultivators. It's an opportunity to offer or explain to customers we can offer both air pneumatic drills that can be used as hybrid for sugar beet and multiple crops or we also offer a thoroughbred sugar beet drill with a cell wheel metering which is matching ground speed. And there's been a lot of interest over the last couple of days around your machine. You've had lots of questions from growers, haven't you? We have and it's... As I mentioned, it's nice to be able to discuss the differences and the benefits of air over mechanical or mechanical over air and which would suit most growers' uh, needs going forward with what they're trying to do on the farm. So as a novice, I don't go drilling. Tell me, what is, what is the difference? If you want to drill sugar beet at speed, the most accurate method is to use a sail wheel which has five cells in, which means the wheel rotates at ground speed. If you want to drill other crops, such as maize, and then also drill sugar beet, the compromise is to use an air drill. And there is a compromise, 
but there's also a benefit and that's that it's difficult to explain without going in depth the depth control on an air drill is using depth wheels either side of double discs but it does mean the metering system's up high and now Although with our system, with the double discs, the seed will come down to the ground when you're drilling at, say, 9K, it will reach the ground at 6K. There's a little difference in speed between the seed and the ground, but there are new systems called pressured air systems which blow the seed. But unfortunately, it blows the seed at 40K down the tube and then it relies on a press wheel to stop the seed and hold it where it's coming into the ground. What we've seen in the field is that quite often it hits the press wheel and we lose the accurate depth control which the double disc system is superior over a standard beat drill. So that's why you call it the thoroughbred because it goes a little bit faster but a little bit more accurate. It's the superior results come from five cell beat drill. That's brilliant. So thanks as much Steve and thanks to both you and Mowbray for joining us for these events. You're very welcome. Thank you. Next we have Rob Thornton with the Cavernan drill though I disturb mid-discussion with drill operators Terry Stokes and John McConaughey from AG Headings of Cambridgeshire. Uh, Rob, you've been to quite a few of these events for us in the past few years. Yeah, we've done many years, haven't we? We have, yeah, and it's great to be back at Wiseham. We've been here once mm. before, haven't we? Yeah. And it's been really nice the amount of growers we've had, and I just happen to have two in front of me at the moment. Um, you're obviously, have you got Cavern and Drill? Yes, we're yeah. on our second, yeah, we're on the second. On your second well. one? Oh, so these are, yeah. these are returners for you then? Absolutely, that's what we like. Yeah. <laughs> So, tell me a little bit of what have you picked up today? Well, much, much of this, this drill that we were just talking to the, the gentleman here that we were just putting out airs is the same unit as this and we was just on and out of food problems we got with airs with him. Right. And he was going to go back to see the man who knows all about what problem is to try and rectify it for us. Yeah. Mm. And that's one of the great things about yeah. all of the manufacturers. Yeah. You, you do have quite a good service. Oh, we're very hands-on. And, and likewise, we're speaking. Well, this uh, guy, the drill's been 10 years old, 15 years old, uh, of the first one. The first one, yes. And, and Simon, the service engineer, yeah. came out yeah. and installed it. Yeah. yeah, he came out when he first started off with Cavernan. And like you say, we were just having a chat about Simon to see if we can rectify this issue we've got with their section control uh, in the next few weeks when we ever get out there. Yeah, well, we're hoping yeah. that it's going to yeah. dry up a little yeah. bit. It's going to dry up a yeah. lot. <laughs> Sam is the oracle on the drills, so... Uh, yeah, well, he is, isn't he? Anyways, yeah. 15 yeah. years of experience yeah. there, so he's hands-on tech so support. Well, if he's 15, 15 years' experience, and I've known him for 15 years... I was yeah. going to say, how long yeah. have you been using <laughs> Cavernan drills? It has been 15 years. 15 years, years easy, yeah. yes, because Simon came out and yeah. showed us how so it So does, does that mean yeah. that's like a bit of a fandom then, you know? It's a, a returner that you're going to keep going with Cavernan? Well, depends if their boss <laughs> buys it or one, yeah, but we don't need another one because we've got one, which is, which is fine. Have you felt about the rest of yeah, the so that, day, the sort of the presentations this soon? For me, being an older... Older part of the generation. It's more for the lad who's going to take over from. Yeah. So, have you been on the drillers yet? Yeah, I've been sort of relieving, like relieving basically, when he has to do potato planting because I've been there overlapping. So I've been doing that for about four years now. 
obviously last year was a big a yeah, major difference from the previous three years because yeah, so. last year was the worst first wet year basically yeah. all and the other years were bone dry and have you seen the crop through so have you got in the harvester as well and seen how difficult it is to well the crop? we've been there sort of more on a trailer because the harvester's a contractor but yeah right. Yeah. But yeah, sort of see yeah. it from start to finish, I suppose. I was going to say, the last um, <laughs> podcast I was actually out with a, a fairly new harvest driver and we, we had an issue where the headwinds have been um, differently and there was a, a pond in the field that they'd, they'd right. actually um, drilled in, around in a circle and he was trying to drive the harvester <laughs> around. So brilliant. If you're now starting, um, I think anyone that's harvesting will say... Get and sit beside them when they're harvesting, and then you'll understand the problems that yeah. they might have. Yeah. There. Definitely going around in circles with the harvesters, not a thing. Well, yeah. Thank you both ever so much. I'm glad you've enjoyed yourself. And yes, it's been so good. I'm sure yeah, you've spoken to the right person to get your drill sorted. Yeah, yeah. you hope so. Yeah. 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 He knows a man who knows. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> lovely. So, Tom, this is your very first uh, BBO drill training event, isn't it? It is. And brilliant, it's got this uh, grimy, grimy machine here. Nice red, stands out well. And you've had lots and lots of interest, haven't you? We have had a lot of interest, yeah, yeah. Yeah? Um, yeah, people who different, who've got different, uh, different manufacturers' machines, quite interested to come and have a look, which is yeah. good to see. Good and to have you been to. surprised by some of the conversations you've had? Yeah, we sort of, uh, a lot of people, they, you always get it where they compare what they've got to what, you know, to what we've got. And it was quite interesting to, to see the similarities and what we do differently. And I know we've had quite a few um, newcomers yeah. to drilling. So some, some of them have been drilling uh, or growing sugar beet, but they're going to be getting behind the drill for the first time. Yeah. Um, what, what are your thoughts as to why that is? I think just old age. I think people are coming on retiring, to be honest yeah. with you, and uh, passing over the precision because it is a, with it being a precision job. I think you know it is a daunting job, and yeah, I think people people don't want that on their shoulders anymore as well. Mm-hmm. So they're moving off and letting the, the newbies have a go. And, and how does the grimy machine fit into that? Because obviously, attention to detail is a major part of um, getting the crop in right and the population right isn't it it is and where Grimmer is very good is with the technology so it's all done from the from the main screen in the tractor cab which for the youngsters would be brilliant because through the technology and it's very very basic very simple technology to use through the screen and and the drill just looks after itself really as long as you've got your external settings right you know you can drive from from the cab and it's easy and I suspect that was music to people's ears to hear someone say there's a screen in the cab, but it's easy because yes, yeah. so many machines, you've got screens all over the place and it's, you know, you've got to... That, that was one of the comments from a lot of the, the operators is how simple ours is, you know, to navigate the screen and to use what yeah. basic settings you've got to put into a go drilling. It was quite... Yeah. Yeah, it's not complicated oh, at all. Well, like I say, I hope you've enjoyed being with us. It's been fantastic. Thank you. Great. And we'll definitely be asking you back. So uh, yeah. thank you very much for your time. No worries at all. Thank you very much. Right. So, Ed, you're the fifth one of our manufacturers that we're going to hear today, and you're a newcomer to BBRO Drill Operating Days, aren't you? Yeah, that's right. This is our first year um, being here. So, um, yeah, no, it's really, really good to be here. Um, had a lot of good, good conversations with customers. Um, and, yeah, learnt a lot as well, so yeah. and really the, positive. And the Coob machine, that, that is new to the UK? Yes, so this is our first um, specific beat drill in the country. Uh, so this is our, our Cosma so it's a 12-row machine at 50 centimetre spacing. Um, this is a retailed machine, so um, it'd be good to get the first one out in the UK this, this season. Um, 
and obviously we, we, we do do a lot of precision drills, but more on the maize side. Um, so to, to get into a new market is really good for us. Yeah, and I, I know this is going to be Suffolk, so that's not too far from me. I might pop down and just see how it's been performing <laughs> for you. And so you've met quite a lot of the um, sugar beet drill operators, which I'm assuming are new to you as well mm -hmm. and you know, new customers or new potential customers. Yep. Um, how have you found the conversations? Yeah, really positive. Um, it's good for us to uh, to get known in this, this market because, as I say, it is a new market for us. Um, although we've had the drill for a long time, we've not cracked the market yet. Um, so it's really good. And we've had a lot of good, good conversations with customers or potential customers um, and people that probably didn't realise that we made a beat drill. So in that respect, it's really positive for us. Yeah. And have, has anything surprised you about what they've been asking? Uh, no, there's... I mean, uh, we found the customers like what the drill that they've got um people are, are not stuck in their ways but um the old old drills are still out there um we're trying to bring something new to the market we've got electric drive on this so with section control and cur uh, curve compensation and all these new things so in that respect it's uh yeah we, we've got some new exciting things um but yeah as a whole the customers have been really positive so. yeah and have you any plans to demonstrate it anywhere in the future uh, yeah, so we, we will have a, a smaller machine on the demonstration fleet uh, for the May side, um, but for us to change across to, to sugar beet, it's just a case of changing the disc, so in the future we could see it as a possibility to, to get out there yeah. and do some work with it. And I'm sure there'll be quite a few sugar beet growers that are interested, especially at the moment there seems to be a little bit more um, positivity in the yes. industry, so we've been very pleased by the responses that we've been receiving yeah. and uh, hopefully it will lead to a, a, a bigger market for you in future. Yeah, no, that's brilliant, yeah. Thank yeah. you. Thank you. All right. Well, I hope you're still with us after such a mammoth beat cast. Just leads me to say a big thank you to the manufacturers that joined us for the Drill Operator Days, and that was Grimmy, Cavernland, Kuhn, Monasem and Vardastat. Also thanks to our hosts, Morley Farms and Rise Home Campus. And a special thank you to both Simon and Stephen for joining us. If you'd like to know more about drilling an establishment, we do have a little booklet that's available on our website, www.bbro.co.uk forward slash publications. And it's the Drilling and Establishment book. And if you'd like basis points, the numbers you require are AP forward slash 135168 forward slash 2324 forward slash K. And hopefully you're aware we have an online beat chat available on the 4th of March, 1 o'clock to 2 o'clock. And that is available via the website. And also we are sending emails out. We hope you can join us for that, for the update on the virus yellows forecast and the season ahead. Which leads me just to say all the best for the start of drilling season and thank you for listening. Bye.